Welcome back to Evercore ISI's uh, Payments and Fintech Innovators Forum. I'm David Togut, Payments Analyst for Evercore ISI. Uh, delighted to welcome uh, John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer and EVP Customer Operations for PayPal. John, thanks so much for being here. Greatly appreciate it. It's great to be here, David. Thank you. At your recent investor day, you provide a new five-year financial guidance mm -hmm. driven by 15% compound annual net new account growth and 20% compound annual organic revenue growth. What will be the biggest drivers of net new account growth and of the 5% growth in ARPU? Sure. So, you know, we were excited to announce the, the plans over the next five years of, of doubling our net new actives. And uh, a significant driver of that is actually reducing the churn of the existing customers that we have. You know, in any given year, we, we do, we have a significant customer, significant number of customers that churn. And part of the, the launching the new experiences and new products like buy now, pay later, crypto, getting into financial services is to provide more means of engagement for that customer base uh, so that they're, you know, um, interacting with us uh, on a much more frequent basis and therefore more likely to use us in, in payments and, and, and not churn. So a big driver of that increase is, is uh, reduced churn. Um, I guess secondarily to that, um, we've got uh, some, some plans to grow in uh, particular international markets, which, uh, which also includes expanding Venmo internationally. Um, so those are uh, probably the two big drivers of, of, the, um, of the net new active growth. From an ARPU perspective or average revenue per user perspective, um, uh, you know, similar to my comments on increasing engagement, if we can get those customers that are interacting with us, uh, you know, kind of on a, a medium engagement level and move them up to high engaged customers, that's going to account from a, for about two thirds of the revenue increase. And so there's a maturity curve with, with any new customer where when they um, start using PayPal for the first time, it's a little less frequent, and then it, it evolves into something more. And as we roll out more of these experiences, uh, it gives our customers more opportunities to use us. One example I'll give, uh, David, is that with uh, Buy Now, Pay Later, 40% of the, the customers in the U.S. that used that in the fourth quarter actually used it two subsequent times. And so it's just it's one example of another product that has some stickiness to it that uh, keeps those customers engaged. Your new five-year guidance um, calls for 22% average annual uh, earnings per share growth. What are the biggest drivers of operating margin expansion, or is some of the two percentage point premium VPS growth over revenue growth likely to come from share repurchase? Yeah, so um, we've been real pleased with how we've performed thus far from a margin expansion perspective. I think if you go back to 2018 and look at the guidance that we've laid out uh, during that period of time, we've expanded margins, I believe, over 300 basis points. And even our, our guidance this year, a year of very heavy uh, internal investment, contemplates 50 to 100 basis points of margin expansion. And so as we, as we look out over the next few years, we think that our ability to continue to scale at that low marginal cost is, is going to drive increased margin expansion. It's actually not, David, that related to um, uh, share buyback. We've got uh, plans to, to buy back shares that are, you know, about offsetting the dilution from share-based compensation. Uh, we can obviously, um, you know, 
adjust that moving forward, depending upon um, what the alternative uses of cash are, where our stock price is and things like that. But, but really the margin expansion is just coming from the inherent scalability of the business. Um, you know, as I said before, like our, our, our margins want to go up, but we also think it's appropriate to continue to invest heavily so that, you know, the next time we've got an investor day and we're talking about the next five years after that, we can continue to, to show this level of growth. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we're, we're fairly rare in the fintech space insofar as being able to enjoy this level of revenue growth and do it while, while having the margins that we do it and importantly, the cash generation that we do. Where do you expect to see that um, greater incremental margin more at the transaction level or the other OPEX level? Uh, I think some of both. So, you know, clearly this year we've seen um, some really strong performance in the transaction margin uh, level and uh, grown that more so than, than any year prior. And that's a function of a lot of things. I think the, 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 the sort of, need and relevance of, of PayPal that exists today as e-commerce has been pulled forward. Um, it's also a, a function of some of our variable costs, uh, namely transaction expense and transaction loss. Um, we've seen uh, a shift to debit um, as, as part of the, the mix of funding instruments. And, and the, um, the, the PayPal core branded payment button tends to skew to a lower lower uh, uh, funding costs. And so as we, as we expect um, the, 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 these trends to be sustainable and durable around more online shopping, that's going to mute some of the increase uh, or mute some of the inflation that one might uh, expect over time in transaction expense. On transaction loss, uh, you know, I think we, we have performed better from a, a risk perspective than ever in our history. And, uh, and, and happy to talk more about that later, but, you know, we continue to see sort of record lows in our transaction loss as a rate of, as a rate of TPV. Um, and so I think that, that those will both continue to, to perform, but at the same time, um, you know, you see the, the non-transaction related expenses, we, you know, we call it, you know, everything else or other operating expenses that we're, we're keeping in check and growing in that kind of mid to, to high single digits. And even then, th that includes a lot of investment in the business. So um, the, the, the trends that we've seen there over the last year, I think, are fairly representative of, of what we'll see going forward. <clears throat> Where do you think you can take trans transaction loss to over the you know, five-year forecast period? It's tough to say, but... Um, you know, I, I clearly think that there's more room for improvement. Um, you know, this is like we we benefit so much from the amount of data that we have, uh, something like 500 petabytes of data, which is just a, a ridiculous amount. And, and with each one of those, we get, you know, we learn more, we get more sophisticated. And the number of checks that we run uh, on any given transaction um, goes into the hundreds. And you know, we we certainly think that, um, you know, that there's always going to be some amount of, of, of fraud losses or, or transaction losses that that we're not able to control, um, you know, letting bad actors in occasionally. But but, you know, we've done a better job at any point in our in our history. And a lot of that is um, improved sophistication around. Uh, you know, AI and machine learning and what we're doing in these areas. And so I think, um, 
you know, if you look back on our, our history here, we're, we're we've had about a year and a half or two years of of this level of performance, and and I think there's still room to improve as we go forward. You called out the the strength and debit um, that you've seen during the COVID period and the impact to uh, transaction margin. You know, obviously the rollout of crypto, you know, as a funding instrument in PayPal wallet, you know, likely will have, you know, help margin as well. How should we think about the impact of crypto on transaction margin? Is this going to be a high frequency funding instrument in your view? It's <laughs> a good question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's probably a little early on to, to uh, postulate around, you know, what, what this could be in the, in the near term. Um, but, you know, as, as you think about the impact on our margins, you know, the, the way that we account for that first is on a net basis. So we don't account for it on a gross basis like, like some others do. And we charge um, uh, basically a, a, tr a transaction fee, which is on a sliding scale, uh, depending upon the size of the transaction. And, and there's a small um, uh, spread between uh, the buyer and sellers of that crypto. And so that's, that's what we recognize from a revenue perspective. From a cost perspective, um, you know, we, we do pay a fee to our partner Paxos related to this. And then, um, you know, whatever the, the customer uses to purchase that, be it a debit card or, or ACH or credit card, we have the transaction costs associated with that. But I think the, the real appeal here, getting to your question, is you know, if this is used as a fungible currency um, um, for customers to go shop at our merchants of 30 million around the world, then that's really promising because, you know, that carries a, a, an extremely low transaction expense for us. And so it's it's one of those many things, um, you know, even pointing to like Venmo and the increased usage of that as, with pay with Venmo that are going to mute some of the pressures that we see around transaction expense. <clears throat> Staying on uh, crypto for a minute, what does the economic model look like for cryptocurrency trading on Venmo, um, you know, and for paying with cryptocurrency trading through the PayPal wallet versus using it as a funding instrument? Uh, yeah, so it, Venmo will be the same as PayPal, where we'll have that um, uh, small fee that we charge uh, users to, to uh, purchase crypto, and there's a spread. Uh, that we monetize as well between the, the buy and the sell there. Um, and so that's the revenue element and the expense element is again, the, uh, uh, what the fee that we pay Paxos, which is uh, relatively small as well as uh, any, any cost of the funding instrument. And so, you know, it's, um, um, it, I think important to, to recognize because we account for it that way, it doesn't represent any outsized volatility on our P and L. Uh, given that it's on a net basis, um, and so you know we've been we've been though very excited to see the the early adoption of this, and I think really important, David, to our thesis going forward around the increased level of engagement is what we're seeing early on in crypto, and so two two data points around that uh, we we shared this at Investor Day, but I think it bears repeating. But um, fifty percent of those customers that have bought crypto are going to the app daily. To, to log in and, and, and check things out. And those all of those customers are logging in at twice the rate that an average or what, what they were before buying crypto. And so it's um, it, it's validating to us to see that when we add these type of experiences 
like crypto, like buy now, pay later, and other things like that, we get higher levels of engagement. And that's exactly what we're trying to drive to as we want to become a, you know, people are using the term super app, but a destination app where people are coming all the time. And there's an interesting figure that uh, I just saw through um, a report that McKinsey put out that said that 80% of customers engage more frequently with their banking app than they do buy things on, on Amazon. And, and I think we all like buying things on Amazon can be, you know, a daily event in, in some households, but, uh, but it, it shows like the, the, the opportunity that's there to really drive that engagement, particularly when we're providing alternative services that get into things like shopping and commerce and other financial services, investing, things like that. So we're, we're quite excited about um, um, the impact that all of these things can have on our, on our P&L over the next five years. Is there a way to gauge, um, you know, those users that are logging in um, to the app daily, half of the crypto users, in terms of what's the flow through to the PayPal wallet or Venmo? Can you see a material uplift in both of those products? We do. We do. And, and, and we shared um, some data around this, like with uh, with our buy now, pay later, where we see an increase in overall TPV of customers that are using that. And so, um, we, we, you know, th- there's a there's a real synergistic effect to providing uh, additional products that increase the level of engagement overall. And, and this really goes to, I think, the heart of what we're doing in the offline space around QR, uh, QR code, uh, or just contactless payments in general, because uh, while the economics of that are not as attractive as what they are online, importantly for us, though, if someone is using us in an offline setting, then they're a lot more likely to use us online when um, when we the, the economics are a lot more attractive. And, and an example I'll point to is in one of our markets, Germany, where uh, we've got uh, tap and pay enabled. We see an incremental 52 transactions online. Uh, from PayPal users that are that are using this offline, and so you know that's a that's an enormous increase in the level of engagement, and 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 really goes to like what we're trying to drive to around being an everyday everyday sort of part of their financial lives. This accelerating shift toward debit that we've seen through COVID, when you look out at the five year forecast period that you provided. How are you thinking about the growth of debit through that forecast period relative to your other major funding instruments? Yeah. So we certainly saw an uptick in the percentage of um, uh, funding that was done through debit versus uh, you know, credit and other means right after uh, the initial stimulus that was um, provided in the, uh, in the whatever that was, the, the April timeframe last year. And it remained elevated through the year, even as we got into December. Not not elevated at the same level as uh, as what we saw when stimulus checks were out there. But I also think, aside from stimulus checks, you know, that there there appears to be sort of a shift to owed money versus owned money um, in in these periods of trepidation or, or uncertainty around the economy. And so, as we look out like at 2021, in anticipation of further stimulus. We expect debit, debit to remain at elevated levels. And, and, you know, one might argue that that's ephemeral and, okay, when we get back to a normal uh, economic environment and the government's not writing stimulus checks for people all the time, will that, you know, recalibrate back down? 
you know, arguably so to, to some level, but by the, by the same token, to the extent that we see a greater proportion of the core PayPal branded experiences being used versus what we refer to as unbranded or the, you know, more sort of credit card processing. Well, that carries a lower funding instrument or lower mix of funding costs for us. They skew more towards debit, ACH, balance. And so I think that that's going to keep the, our funding costs, our, our transaction expenses, the rate of TPV at more depressed levels, you know, you know, compared to where we were prior to the pandemic. You highlighted for this year that 75% of your non-transaction expense growth would be on discretionary investment spending. What are your top three priorities for spending on new growth initiatives this year? And do those top three spending priorities change as we move into 2022 and beyond? Yeah, I would say that the top three, and it's, it's really kind of two and a half because one's encapsulated in the other, but um, I would say that um, consumer financial services uh, certainly is a, is a priority as we expand out into additional um, um, experiences and, and, and capabilities in the wallet. Um, Venmo is, uh, is one. And, and again, like these, the, what we're doing in financial services, we want to roll out into Venmo and PayPal as well. Um, and then um, I would say that uh, uh, the QR code is, is, is part of that as well. And, and again, QR code, you know, one could, um, you know, sort of include in some, there's some overlap with, the, with those other two. But um, I think it's important that, you know, we want to provide these omni-type capabilities to the wallet where you're not just using it online. You have the ability to use it offline. You're seeing increased usage of P2P. With Venmo, we want to continue to, you know, expand things like pay with Venmo. Uh, certainly, the business profiles, uh, which we've rolled out and are are, are ramping up, uh, uh, where where Venmo merchants can disaggregate their their personal uh, lives from whatever their their um, uh, line of work is. You know, all these things that uh, I think give us a, a lot of opportunities to to go out and and really uh, put the foot on the accelerator on what we can do with Venmo. But, but those would be the three that I would, I would probably call out the most financial services, Venmo, and then offline or QR code payments. Does that change as we move into 2022 and beyond? I think it does. Um, And and importantly, like, uh, you know, what we laid out at investor day and highlighting four or five incremental experiences you know, it's not as if when we're finished with that, that, okay, we wash our hands and we're done. We've got to continue to follow the customer. And, and you know, I, I think it's important to note that a big part of our, or a big belief that we have over the next few years is this gravitation towards the digital wallet. And, and you know, I, you know, whether that means the death of cash or whatever, you know, that remains to be seen that, you know, when that happens. But, Certainly, as you you complement existing payments with things like being able to pay with rewards or or drop or wish list with um, with commerce and honey and and roll out with other experiences, having that all in one wallet, I think is pretty important. And and so you know, like if you look at Asia as an example, um, I believe the number is forty percent of in-store payments in Asia are done with a digital wallet. And that would suggest that there's um, still a lot of opportunity, there's still a lot of addressable market in Asia. 
but in the U.S., that number is less than 10%. And so when we think about, you know, where we're going from here, um, you know, we want to continue to build out those capabilities in the digital wallet that are most pertinent to the customers, most relevant to the customers. And, uh, and, and again, there's a, a belief that we have in the, the primacy of the digital wallet going forward. I mean, it just, I've, I've said this multiple times, David, but like, there's nothing about cash that, that is better than, than a digital wallet. I mean, outside of, you know, maybe the, the tactile feel of holding a, a crisp $20 bill, but, but, you know, there, the, everything else about a digital wallet is just much easier, it's simpler, it's more secure. And so I, I certainly think that we're going to continue to see what we, we've already seen in more in markets like China, where that's uh, they're, they're actually ahead of the rest of the world. You mentioned QR codes a little earlier, um, and you've signed a number of large national merchants for QR codes. You know, in the example of CVS, for example, if I'm using my uh, PayPal QR code at CVS, are you bypassing the existing physical merchant acquirer at the point of sale, or is there some sharing of unit economics? You know, on the specifics on that, I think it depends uh, merchant uh, by merchant. Um, but uh, we are we're, we're more think of just like a, 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 a traditional model there, where there are others that are sharing in, in some of the economics. Um, but again, like the, the, the thing for us in the offline world is not so much the, the huge appeal of the unit economics on a particular transaction, but it's what it can do to drive further engagement where we really do um, have better economics and, and can monetize that much more. Um, so it's, it's very much an engagement play. You, you highlighted um, the accelerating shift to the PayPal uh, wallet branded transactions during COVID. As you look, you know, over the next 12 months or so, do you think this heightened level of growth in PayPal wallet branded transactions will continue? Um, I, I, we do expect that it'll be certainly higher than where we were uh, prior to the pandemic. But if you look at whether it's revenue or, or TPD growth, the, the way the year unfolds is, I mean, it's kind of lumpy um, because of what we're lapping last year. So our highest growth will clearly be in the first quarter, you know, absent un something unforeseen right now. Um, and then as we get into the second quarter, you know, there's more challenging comps because that was the peak of the, the shelter in place, the pantry packing and everyone, um, you know, sort of having this alarmist reaction and, and purchasing everything online. And so that'll be our, our, we anticipate our lowest quarter of growth. Then the back half of the year, we, we reaccelerate and get to what is really a more normalized um, uh, trajectory of growth rates um, because the comp is more similar to um, it's, you know, the back half of last year was, was uh, I think, more normalized. And so both from uh, um, an investment perspective, as well as what we what we anticipate on the revenue side, I think the back half of the year is more representative of what we would expect going forward. You've guided for Venmo revenue this year uh, to approach 900 million. You know, what are the top drivers of you know, Venmo monetization this year, or at least getting the incremental revenue? And is there a specific timeline to profitability for Venmo? Sure. Well, like the rest of our products, what's, what, what's really appealing about Venmo is the um, diversified portfolio of products. 
And historically, we've been pretty reliant on one or two or three different avenues for, for monetizing that, with the predominance being the instant cash withdrawal. Uh, going forward, there, there are a lot more ways that uh, a customer can use us and, and also that we can monetize that. Pay with, Venmo, pay with Venmo is going to ramp up a lot more um, in the second half of this year. And so we're quite excited about that. And, and, and look, longer term, that should be one of the key drivers of the, of the revenue and, and, and income that we, we get from that. But I mentioned uh, business profiles. That's another thing that we're quite excited about. Um, QR code is something else. And as you know, remember, a lot of the, the Venmo experiences are shared in the physical setting. And so I think that really plays to to that platform. And then we've got the launch of the new credit card, which I truly believe is a, is a model for how future credit card issuances will be when you've integrated that into the app and you have this great experience. And so that's the composition of, of the uh, various monetization streams um, that we're anticipating right now. In terms of profitability, we said that uh, this year we expect roughly $900 million and overall revenue from Venmo, and to be roughly break-even on a transaction margin basis. As we move into 2022, continue to scale that, continue to grow that, that's the year that we would expect Venmo to be uh, marginally profitable. Just coming back to capital allocation for a minute, uh, you've guided a $40 billion of total free cash generation over the next five years and 30 to 40% of that toward share buyback. When we look at the other 60 to 70%, how do you think about capital allocation priorities? And are there, are there specific areas that you're interested in making acquisitions? Sure. Well, you know, the, I guess I'll start with our guidance didn't include any assumptions around growth or income from any of our acquisitions. And that was uh, a contrast to what we did in the prior investor day. Um, but the bigger we get, you know, the, the harder it is to kind of uh, affect those, those numbers. Um, and, but I think importantly, as we look out into the next five years, you know, we're still gonna be very balanced in the way that we allocate capital. We've earmarked 30 to 40%, as we've said, for, for share buyback, that could, vacillate up or down, um, depending upon a, a number of factors. Importantly, what we see in the, uh, in the M&A space. Um, it's not as if we've got uh, you know, any less appetite for, for M&A, but we weren't so prescriptive as to say, like we did before, that it's one to three billion annually. Um, we'll, we've got, I think, a, a luxury of being very disciplined and opportunistic, and, and there isn't this glaring need to go out and address some um, deficiency in our platform. And so as we think about the type of opportunities that, that you know, we'll, we'll look at going forward, um, you know, it's again, building on some of these capabilities, you know, whether it's uh, in the crypto space or financial services, you know, all of these things that provide additional experiences to our customers and address white space around the globe. And the way that I've characterized our growth, David, over the last five years has really been more about increasing distribution of, of our mark out there. And, and the next five years, I think, will be slightly different than it's, it's improving and increasing experiences. And so uh, it stands to reason that if, if that's where our focus is on the next five years, that some of the, the M&A that we may do 
may fall into that line. But I think equally important is we want to invest in the business. And part of investing in the business is also funding credit. And buy now, pay later is a, is a great example of, you know, where, you know, we can go out and, and fund short duration credit that bears uh, pretty minimal risk for us and drives outsized revenue relative to uh, the capital that's involved relative to, to other like revolving credit uh, or, or, you know, even the merchant lending space. Um, you know, the, the thing about the, the buy now, pay later is most of these customers that are coming to us are existing PayPal customers. You know, most customers, I should say, that are using buy now, pay later right now are PayPal customers. And so we, we have a, a history of their transactions, of their credit worthiness. And so the underwriting risk there is very, very small. And that's why I say, like, when you, when you think about the value proposition here, we've got an easy integration with an existing merchant base. We, we offer up almost 400 million customers around the world that can use this uh, without, you know, anything that they have to do at all. It's just it's presented there in their wallet. And, and there's no risk to this, to the merchant and, you know, no, no fees to the consumer necessarily late fees, but, you know, no cost, no credit uh, cost to that. And then, and then, you know, we're, we're charging a price that you can't beat free. And so I, I just, and, and look, I think our numbers in the fourth quarter, well, it's only one quarter of data, but to, to be, you know, at a point where we're generating $3 billion of annualized TPV, in, in the first quarter and only three markets. And we've got 3 million customers using this. I, I think, you know, when you consider the opportunities worldwide with our $30 million merchants, it's enormous. Look, pay later products in Australia today, which really had a head start on the rest of the world. They represent 8% of e-commerce. Mm. And so I'm not suggesting that it's going to be that way globally, but, you know, if it's, if it's even half of that, um, it's a huge opportunity for someone like us that I think has a clear uh, distinction in the value proposition in this space. You know, that's a good segue into um, the development of, of the super apps with payment shopping and financial services. You know, what are the major milestones we should watch for in the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months in, in terms of the development of the super app? Is there anything transformational that might be coming? So, um, you, you know, from an investor perspective, I, I think keeping a close eye on engagement is is, a, is an indicator of the success here, um, uh, because a lot of these experiences in the super app, destination app, whatever we want to call it, are, are really towards driving some of that. Um, and, and it will, you know, we'll begin rolling out those additional experiences this year. But you know, when we when we look at everything that's contemplated around this, the suite of, of options, this is an 18 to 24 month rollout from, from where we are right now. And so, you know, there'll be a continue sort of cycle of, of new things and new features coming out. And, and it's not just, it's not just new features. It's, it's also improving the ability to navigate through the app. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, one may suggest that the, the PayPal app is, is in need of a refresh. It's a little tired right now. And certainly we look at uh, competitor offerings out there that, that, you know, have less friction, make it easier to navigate, put the things that are most relevant to you, most prominent on the landing page. And so we really uh, have uh, 
taking a, a fresh approach to that to uh, to make those user experiences great. And so again, though, I'd emphasize that this is not as if we've got a finite list of things that we're going to do and then you know we're complete and we just move on. This is going to be a, a constant iteration where we want the app to get better and better. And and with every new product that we roll out, we do A/B testing to learn. You know, what, what is the, the best functionality? Where, where should this be placed? How do people use this? What is the, the halo effect of this on other products? And so all of these things require iteration on our part. And so this is this will be an ongoing process over the next five years. Similar question on the on the PayPal commerce platform for merchants in terms of what are the biggest investments you know you'll be making? And is there anything that might be seen as transformational from the merchant side? Well, uh, the the real I think appeal. Well, let me step back actually before I go there. Like, you know, the acquisition of Honey and 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 what that allows us to do to get into commerce has some um, some obvious synergistic benefits. You know, having PayPal as a payment option on there, even buy now pay later. If you think about that product and, and that experience, but it's it's really what we can do to leverage the data. To, to your point, to help merchants. And, and you know, merchants today um, have a number of alternatives with how they spend their marketing dollars. And if you think about getting to the end of the quarter and look, you wanna, you know, increase your level of revenue, some merchants may do banner advertising or something like that. And, and the ROI on that is, is relatively low. Um, what we're leaning into, what we're really trying to promote is to have, um, you know, better fidelity or, or better ROI on those marketing dollars that a merchant can spend. Because what we're doing is basically collecting data of what those consumer preferences are. At what price point do they want to buy something at a certain, you know, shoe size or whatever it is. And if we have uh, basically a log of hundreds of thousands of, of preferences that customers have selected, we can... Uh, we can alert merchants and say, look, if you, you know, lower, lower the price of shoes by $5 or whatever in this color, we know that, you know, we've got this segment of customers that are willing to buy that. And so what it does is provide an alternative to merchants uh, from something different from traditional advertising or marketing that uh, seemingly has a much higher ROI on that spend. And that's a that's a fundamental shift in, in the way that merchants are, are, are spending their marketing dollars today. And so uh, it's good for merchants. It's also obviously great for consumers because they're getting offers that are tailored to their, their own preferences that they've listed. And, in, and of course, we benefit as well by, by you know, driving that connection between the two. And so this is a, this is a big investment. It's a multi-year path, but one we're excited about. And, and, and look, I think the other thing around this is what we can do with um, reward points, um, honey gold, and, and how that um, uh, interacts with that experience that I just described. And so we think it's a pretty promising opportunity to, to get into this commerce uh, uh, area that, you know, heretofore we, we've really not, um, um, you know, made any headwind in. I'd like to just close, John, with a question on transaction authorization rates. You indicated that you've raised transaction off rates by 400 basis points since 2018. What investments are you making to increase transaction author authorization rates going forward, and, and how high can they actually go? 
Well, there's a theoretical limit to it at 100 percent. But but that would mean that, you know, we're we're authorizing even the 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 bad actors, the, the you know, potential fraudulent transactions. And so what we're really uh, what we're really after is to, you know, get to 100 percent of good users. Um, and, the, you know, there's a lot that we can do that we, we've made significant progress here. And and to be clear, like this is this is one of those areas that is it's good for our customers. It's good for PayPal, but it's also good for the issuers, right? We see that, you know, we're helping them get more, more revenue by, by helping to authorize these transactions. And this is where our data, uh, I think, really comes to bear by having the amount of data that we do, seeing, having the, the visibility into the merchant side and the consumer side. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot more room to go here. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot that we can do, too, just around, like, using our data for example, like when we know that uh, a card is, is going stale, it's getting ready to expire, um, being able to vault a, a, the second card that you have in your wallet or the, the data that we have around um, stolen credit cards. Uh, and, and so these, these are all things that we can do to, to improve those, those experiences among those good users. And, you know, I, I, you know I, I, our goal is to get to 100% of good user authorization um, yeah, it's probably a pretty challenging goal, but um, but we've made tremendous progress here over the last few years and expect to continue to do it going forward. John, thanks so much for your time and insights. Greatly appreciated and look forward to uh, all the innovations to come from PayPal over the next couple of years. Great. Thank you for the opportunity, David. I enjoyed it. Thank you.